Tēnā koutou nō mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, as the government announces options for a second Auckland Harbour crossing, the opposition turns its attention to electrifying New Zealand. We need to double the amount of renewable electricity uh, that we have in this country. Then, we ask if the government's integrity is under threat. So there was absolutely no benefit whatsoever for those gentlemen, no benefit for me in any way, shape or form, only uh, a solution. And the fiery reaction to Donald Trump's indictment on criminal charges. I think you're able to see that we have passed the point of no return, haven't we? Or you want to use another analogy, we've crossed a Rubicon. We will have that story for you shortly. But we begin this morning with the opposition's first significant foray into climate change policies ahead of October's election. National Party leader Christopher Luxon has announced a new policy to try and fast-track consenting around projects that should substantially increase our capacity to generate renewable energy, something that all parties agree is critical for a low-emissions future. As Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern announced a target of generating 100% of New Zealand's electricity from renewables by 2030, a goal that PM Chris Hipkins backs. These are things we can do to reduce our emissions, making sure we're using more renewable mm. electricity um, so that when you do plug in your electric mm. vehicle, it's coming from a sustainable source. But experts say hitting the target is potentially tricky because renewables are dependent on conditions. Solar power doesn't really work at night when electricity requirements spike. Droughts mean that water doesn't flow through hydro dams and if the wind drops, turbines don't turn. That's left the government considering the massive Lake Onslow project. It's effectively a giant water storage battery designed to bridge our electricity supply through difficult periods. But the potential costs of that are massively expanding before construction even begins. A detailed business case is underway, but the latest forecasts suggest Lake Onslow is likely to cost almost $16 billion. Hydro, geothermal, wind and solar. Between them, renewable energy sources make up about 80% of the electricity generated in New Zealand. A large part of National's policy focuses on speeding up consenting procedures under the RMA. Infrastructure spokesperson Chris Bishop is with us this morning. Kia ora. Good morning. This is technical wonky stuff. It is. But it's essential. What is the problem you're trying to solve? We want the mass electrification of the New Zealand economy. We are so well placed in New Zealand. We have the best wind in the world. We have hydropower, which has powered New Zealand for decades. We have great geothermal resource, which is baseload power that goes into the system. Uh, so the ability for New Zealand to convert our cars, our buses, our trains, our industrial processes to electricity from renewable generation is amazing. And what we're saying is let's double the amount of renewable generation that we have and convert whole swathes of the New Zealand economy to uh, electrification, uh, which will lower our emissions, but also mean we can grow our economy. You know, electric vehicles in New Zealand are amazing, because when you plug your car in, I, I drive a Nissan Leaf, when I plug it in at home and charge it up overnight, I'm essentially putting wind and uh, solar power uh, to some extent, and um, geothermal power uh, into my car. In Australia, when you drive an EV, you're replacing coal mm. with petrol. So you're not making much gain. In New Zealand, you make massive gains, and uh, they're cheaper to run, and we want more of that. How will your policy achieve that? So the big barrier at the moment is the Resource Management Act. You think about a wind farm that Christopher Luxon and I visited uh, just this week, uh, Westwind out at Macra. Mm. Two years to build, 
eight years to be consented. Mm. Uh, the Wairaki Power Station, built in the 1950s in New Zealand, uh, been providing baseload geothermal power for, for decades, took seven years to reconsent. Mm. Seven years. So the RMA is a massive stumbling block. And it's not just National who says that, by the way. It's the Infrastructure Commission says it, Transpower says it, all the generators say it. Uh, there's just widespread... I mean, the, the government is going through some RMA, significant RMA reforms at the moment. They are, but it's going to make the problem worse. It's RMA 2.0. Contact Energy said uh, a couple of weeks ago mm. uh, the single biggest barrier to decarbonising New Zealand is the new RMA because of the uncertainty it projects. So what we're saying is resource consent, one year from woe to go, from start to finish, when you apply... To the issue to the decision on resource consent should be one year. You should also have 35-year consents. That's mm. a big barrier. Labor wants it to be 10 years, but no electricity generator is going to invest in uh, turbines mm. and, and um, wind farms if they can only get it for 10 years. Now, just to be 100% clear, because I've gone through the policy, this wouldn't apply to new hydro power stations, for example, would it? The one-year resourcing process. So you're talking about things like wind farms, Correct. solar farms, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and the reason for that is that hydro, we acknowledge, is environmentally tricky. Yeah. And so we're simply saying for, for, for new hydro, of which there is a role, by the way, but one year, that's unrealistic. Okay. For everything else, one year. So you want to double uh, generation. And at the moment, um, private industry is responsible for generating electricity in New Zealand. You want that to remain the same. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that in the future, National would expect New Zealand to generate surplus electricity? Uh, well, I mean, in the sense of over and above what we need for our current electricity demand, yes, because we want whole big sectors of the economy. Sure, you want to double it. But, yeah, we but want to double in, it. Right, right. OK, so uh, page seven of your policy, uh, consumers and businesses will benefit through lower fuel prices. Mm -hmm. That's what your policy says. So private companies work on commercial incentives. Mm -hmm. Why would a company want to generate electricity in what will essentially be a flooded market? So what we're talking about is in comparison to the base case and its overall household energy. So what we're saying there is that with the conversion of cars to electric cars, and all the projections are that by 2050 there'll be 4 million EVs on the road, for mm. example, um, household running costs, household energy costs will be lower because people will be using electric mm. cars rather than petrol-powered cars. Now, running cost of an EV, 40 cents. Do the math. Petrol price at the moment, mm. $2.50 when I drove to uh, the flight this morning, 40 cents to run an EV. So overall household energy costs will be lower. 10% mm. we project by 2030 and actually 45% by 2050 mm. um, in net terms for households. That's a huge saving because renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, uh, and we need to take advantage of it. I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, EVs in just a moment. I, I want to throw some names at you. Mahinirangi, Mount Cass, Pukitoi, mm -hmm. Central, Titi Okura, Castle Hill, Hurunui, Kaiweta Downs, Tomata Tōtara. Do you know what those names have in common? They're wind farms that are consented now. Right. Yep but aren't being built. That's right. So this is your problem. You say that the consenting is the issue. Those farms aren't being built. Do you know why they're not being built? Well, I think you're about to tell me. There's a range of reasons. Do you not, do you not know? Well, there's, I mean, in every individual case, there'll be a range of different reasons. Some of them, some of them will be consented but not economic to build yet. Uh, and, and that's what generators do, is they consent a whole lot of things and then... But you've just told me the that economics. the problem is the, the economics around the consenting, not the economics around the building. Here's what the New Zealand Wind Association says. Quote... Many consented projects are currently on hold as the developer waits for market conditions and demand for renewable electricity to increase to make the wind farm commercially viable. They're being consented. It just isn't in the commercial interest of the generators to build these things. So there's a couple of things going on here. So the way the generation market works is people go around, or companies go around and consent a whole lot of things, uh, and we want more consents, we want more uh, 
we want more exploration. But the point is that they are yep. being your whole the whole criticism of the RMA at the moment is that they're not being consented fast enough, and that's why we don't have more renewable we, we want energy. A whole range of, this is a perfect example of places that are being consented. Yeah, we want a whole range. Of, we want a whole range of options when it comes to the, the generation portfolios that companies look at. And then the second thing is demand growth in New Zealand's actually been flat for the last few years, and mm. the reason for that is energy efficiency, things like insulation that the last national mm. government promoted into households, for example. But here's the critical point. Mm. Generation uh, 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 demand for electricity is forecast to rise quite rapidly in the next 30 years. In what way and, will well, you incentivise that? Well, it's going to happen, right? Because but what it, way? In what way will you incentivise that? Well, we, I mean, you mean in terms of electric vehicles and things like that? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. If 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 we're going to have to if we're going to have to have this transition at, at the moment, we are essentially being incentivised to use our cars and petrol burning cars, combustion engine vehicles, even more. Of course, that excise tax cut is in place once again. So, in what the, way the, will the, your party incentivise the, the use of EVs? For example, we don't, we don't. Well, I'll come to EVs in a moment. But the market and um, Basic economics dictates that electricity demand will rise because as the emissions trading scheme puts a price on carbon and carbon price rises and petrol goes up in price and um, other inputs into the industrial processes rise, mm. uh, the, the natural incentive will be for people to transition to EVs. That's what you're seeing at the moment. So Transpower says by 2050 mm. there'll be a 70% increase in electricity demand. The critical question is this, how do we meet that demand? Our argument is that we need to make it a lot easier to meet that demand from renewable generation sources, not coal and gas, because by renewables, they're the cheapest, they're the least cost, uh, and we can grow the economy and cut our emissions, and we've got a perfect situation I, for this. I think no one, no one is disputing that increasing the supply of renewable energy in the future is mm. essential. But my point is that you have to raise both of those arms at the same time, don't you? You have to increase demand and you have to increase supply. There's no point in increasing one of those if the other isn't there to meet it. And at the moment, I'm asking what you'll do to incentivise demand in the short term. Well, we'll, we'll have some more to say on electric vehicles in, um, in, in short order. Come before, on, Bish. You oppose the clean car discount. <laughs> you oppose the clean car upgrade programme. Can you guarantee that before the election, you will have some sort of policy that incentivises the uptake of electric vehicles? Uh, you will see what we have to say about electric vehicles before the election. We support the clean car standard, which is uh, that's a one that's achievable. Mm. Uh, we support the rollout of EV chargers, for example. Uh, and uh, the last national government has a strong record. But on you want to double the supply, so yep. you want to double the supply, which is which is massive, right? Look, 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 that... we're, we, we're electric vehicle evangelists, right? We're evangelists. Uh, I drive an EV. Uh, in fact, we're a two EV family. Uh, I love them. We want to see more of them on the roads. Some of that is going to happen naturally anyway because the running mm. costs are so much lower. It was the last national government that introduced the exemption from road user charges. But, but it's this so national, it's this national this. opposition that opposes the clean car discount. You oppose the clean car yeah, upgrade we, program. Yeah, we, we oppose the ute tax because we don't think that um, charging farmers seven grand to uh, buy a ute is a good idea. And we don't support subsidising Teslas. You know, pe people who can afford to buy a Tesla don't need five thousand bucks from the taxpayer. Well, at least paid at, for by at least two Ford Rangers. At least two Ford Rangers were registered for every Tesla last year. So perhaps it's the cars at yeah, the other but, end but, of the but scale that are more of the issue. We just agree in principle that, you, that, that yeah. wealthy people buying Tesla shouldn't get subsidies. That is regressive and dumb, and we oppose well, it. Can we, we just agree in principle that if you're going to increase supply, you're going to have to increase demand as well? Um, you're saying well, you want to. I think you got it round the wrong way. The demand's coming. The supply's got to follow, right? And that's our point. You're saying that New Zealand needs to double uh, its renewable electricity generation. So, so what's the figure that you have to hit? Do you think? Well, we've got about 7,000 megawatts in the grid at the moment, right. so a doubling's about 14,000 megawatts, um, and we want to meet it from solar, which is 
you know, it was uneconomic in New Zealand 20 years ago, but it's yeah. increasingly economic in New Zealand. Geothermal's got a role, hydro. A lot of it will come from wind. Uh, and look, the market will determine that. Uh, New Zealand currently has about 580 turbines, and we'd need thousands alongside those solar options, the geothermal options, and potentially new hydro options. Um, all of those would be consented within a year under this policy. What about communities that don't want them? Well, I mean, the communities will still have an opportunity through, through the resource consent process to participate. We're not saying that they shouldn't. Uh, what we're saying is that the, the time frame's got to be significantly mm. shorter. And I would just make the point that, you know, Parliament has declared a climate emergency. Um, New Zealanders want action on climate change. That mm. does actually mean building things that make it easier to decarbonise. You know, there is no free lunch here. Uh, wind farms do have an impact on the environment, no doubt about it. Hydro mm. clearly does. Geothermal does to some extent as well. That's correct, but decarbonising our economy is mm. absolutely imperative, both legally, because New Zealand has legal commitments yeah. around decarbonisation, morally, for future generations as well, and so we do actually have to do some things, and what we're saying is the current government's approach of fluffing around and making it very hard for wind farms to actually be built has to stop. We have to build them. So I'm interested in this point, though, because I know a lot of people would be watching the TV going, well, hang on, how would I feel if I had a wind farm 200 metres down the street? Um, that, the that's first... highly unlikely to happen. Uh, right? Sure. Well, OK, explain that, because the first question in your key issue segment is, quote, can a wind farm be installed next door? And you say you'll have minimum standards for how close they can go to homes. Why don't you have that detail now? Well, that will be set through the National Policy Statement on Renewable Generation that we're going to set, right? So there's a current one, we're going right. to update it. And what we're going to do is, this is wonky, but it's needed, we're going to make uh, renewable generation a controlled activity through the RMA. Now, right. what that means is that basically it says to councils, these things are happening, mm. we can have a discussion around the conditions upon which they happen, but you can't have an argument about whether or not they're actually going to happen or not. Right. They are going to. We're now going to argue about the noise about sure. exactly where they're sighted. So, so what, what does that mean in, in practice, though, for people who do feel concerned and anxious about that prospect? Well, it means councils will go through a process and what they'll do is mm. say, you can't build here and you can't build here and you can't build here because they're too close to particular communities, the noise is too great, this might be a site of Indigenous uh, biodiversity, for example, mm. you can't build here, this is a heritage site, you can't build here, or significant natural area. So take the central Otago, the beautiful paintings, the, the landscapes sure. there, they can be identified, you can't do it there. So those things are out. And, and, but and everywhere else, you know, sites of wind, you know, hilly ridges where the wind blows, like in Macra, where it's the best wind in the world, 45% capacity factors, we should be using them. And if the resource uh, consent process hasn't been resolved after a year, yep. your policy says it gets built. Yep, correct. Well, the, the, the consent is issued, yep, right. that's right. But there's an incentive on, the, of, on everybody to, yeah. to you know, get on with it. There's an incentive on the generators yeah. to work with communities and there's an incentive on councils to get on with it. OK, uh, let's talk housing. In your capacity as housing spokesperson, uh, National's bipartisan deal on housing density rules with Labor, can you guarantee that National will go into the, into the election with that policy? We've always said we're open to sensible changes, but the reason we signed that deal was because it essentially reflects... Our view is essentially the government coming around to National's view is that it's been way too difficult to build houses in New Zealand and it's an enhancement of property rights and allows people to get on and um, do a bit of subdivision, build, um, you know, go up. That doesn't answer the question. So, so as it stands, is National planning to go into the election with that policy? National's planning on going into the election with a housing policy that reflects the idea of greater density in our cities, 
but also going out at okay, the you know, but there just be one hundred percent clear here. Okay, so, so okay, you sound like you're backing backing away. No, from I'm that. not. I'm not backing away from it. We've always said we're open to sensible changes around it. It's in the middle of bidding it at the moment. You've got Auckland going through its process, Christchurch going through its process. All the all the councils do. Have changes been proposed to you that you are currently considering? No, no, no changes have been proposed. The, the cha various changes have been talked mm. about by various councils. No one's come to us. Certainly, Labor hasn't. No one's come to us position. and said you should do X, Y, Z. Mm. None of that. We, what we're doing is carefully monitoring the way in which the councils are approaching it, mm. um, and carefully monitoring the community uh, feedback that's coming through. And um, we'll have more to say about housing in due course. You're the campaign chair for national this election, and the candidate selections to date are, it has to be said, a notably diverse bunch. Uh, compared to some other recent cases. Has that been a deliberate effort? We've worked really hard to uh, try and uh, get more diversity into the caucus, both from a, a gender point of view, but also people from different backgrounds. Um, mm. Christopher Luxon's made that a, a key priority and um, talked to the National Party Board and, and our local electorate committees around that. Uh, so we're proud of some of the talent coming through. We, we've got some outstanding candidates, some people who've, who've run before and, and missed out, and some MPs who... Uh, got turfed at the last election, who want to come back, but also some outstanding, talented people coming through. When do you reckon the party list will be released? Oh, it'll be uh, June, July, potentially August. It's, it's normally about a couple of months out. Sure. The, election, the, so. the reason I ask is that just going through those electorates where you've announced candidates, uh, the non-Pakia candidates are not in seats that National would traditionally have a hope of winning. So I went through them all. New Lynn, Mount Roskill, Mangere, Rongotai, Kelston. By my count... National has never won any of those elections. Mm. So are those new, diverse candidates being set up to fail? Well, I mean, in many of those cases, the local electorate committees chose those candidates. Um, it won't surprise anybody to learn that the list is an opportunity for both major parties to uh, make sure that their caucus reflects mm. uh, the, the makeup of modern New Zealand in both a gender sense and also a... Uh, you know, ethnic diversity sense. Um, so some of those candidates will be uh, in winnable list positions and, and some won't be. That's just the reality. Not everyone wants to be an MP. Well, there's many people who want to be an MP. Some people miss out. That's the nature of the game. I, I know you're, you're a, um, a beast of the horse race, a beast of the horse race um, in, in politics. Well, as the campaign chair, do, do you think it's fair to say that National was caught a bit flat-footed by the change in Prime Minister this year? Um, I don't know about that. There's been a bit of public commentary around that. I mean... Uh, I don't think that's very fair. I mean, Chris Hipkins, I know well, obviously, mm. he's next door to me in, in, in Rimataka, you know, we're similar ages, we actually mm. went to the same primary school, or well, same intermediate school, Hutt Intermediate, he's a few years ahead of me. Um, so, you know, not, not really. I mean, Chris Hipkins is a, is a straight-up guy, um, but ultimately he's been part of a government that's failed for five years. In fact, he's been a senior minister in that government. Our education results are appalling. Mm. Te Pukinga... Uh, you know, is a disaster. Well, so, and, so, uh, so why, why has National not had a good few months in the polls? Well, I think a couple of things. One is you change the Prime Minister, change the leader of a major mm. political party, there's automatically a kind of people say, well, rightio, let's have a look at this. This is mm. quite interesting. Uh, and the media attention goes on to that. That's what happened. Um, you'd expect nothing less um, from the move from Jacinda Ardern to Chris Hipkins. And then mm. we had the floods in Auckland, and then, of course, we had the uh, cyclone Gabriel as well. And quite rightly, we decided to pull back and not be too political for that period. It was a totally unwinnable situation for us. If we'd come out with a whole bunch of policy announcements, people would say, why are you not focusing on the cyclone? You know, mm. how toned there for you? Uh, and then, uh, when so we that was a conscious quiet, decision. Yeah, absolutely conscious decision. Mm. Because what's the point in announcing your policy on housing, for example, or you know, I don't know, immigration, or pick a policy area? No point in announcing that stuff mm. while people are quite rightly dealing with you know deaths and destruction in a one part of the country. 
on the flip side, <laughs> people also said, we haven't heard from you guys for a while. Where are you? Um, so... Very difficult situation for oppositions. Uh, the latest One News Kantar poll shows National at 34% party support. Christopher Luxon at just 17% in the preferred Prime Minister. Why do you think there's such a discrepancy between those numbers? Look, I think we're early days in the election campaign. You know, we've got six months to go. There's, there's many, mm. many, many months to go. And people will start to think about politics much more as we get closer to the time. I think but, that's just but, the but he's been party leader now for 18 months? Yeah, and look, there's, there's many more months to go uh, before the election. Uh, my sense from, from my own community in, in the hut is people are starting to sort of turn on to politics a bit. Every month mm. that goes by is at the Riverbank Markets in the hut yesterday and a lot of people coming by and saying, oh, good work on this, good work on that, or but, whatever. But why, is there, a discrepancy, you know, why is there a discrepancy for Christopher Luxon but not the same discrepancy for Chris Hipkins? Well, look, opposition leaders are a tough job. There's no doubt about it. Um, and uh, we've got a lot of work to do, both in a party sense, and I know Christopher's up for the fight as well, uh, and he's working really hard. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Nationals Infrastructure, Housing Spokesperson and Campaign Chair for this year's election, Chris Bishop. After the break on Q&A, the impact of money and connections on New Zealand politics. What does the Stuart Nash saga say about integrity in government? Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Stuart Nash was sacked from Cabinet this week after it was revealed he emailed privileged information from inside Cabinet discussions to two private citizens who had both donated money to him. What's more, senior staff in the Prime Minister's office had known about the email, but withheld it from a request made under the Official Information Act. They've been accused by the opposition of a conspiracy, but say it was an honest mistake. It's more than just a breach of the Cabinet manual, though, and a highly questionable treatment of a deeply embarrassing email by the PM's office. Just to reiterate that main point, privileged information was emailed by a government minister to supporters who had donated thousands of dollars to him. It's the second time in a matter of weeks that questions of money, access, connections and integrity have been put to the government. Recent reporting from RNZ's Guy and Espiner has detailed chummy relationships between lobbyists, politicians and political staffers. As it stands, New Zealand has some of the loosest laws among developed democracies when it comes to lobbying. So this week we went to a range of political parties and asked them three questions. In principle, does your party support the establishment of an anti-corruption commission? Does your party support the establishment of a register of lobbyists? And does your party support the establishment of a lobbying stand-down period? To Party Māori, the Opportunities Party and the Greens all responded, yes, yes, yes. Nationals support a stand-down period for ministers transitioning into lobbying and a register of lobbyists, but doesn't see a place for a new anti-corruption commission. ACT said no to all three questions, saying they'd reduce the public's access to politicians, but not the influence of skilled lobbyists. New Zealand First and Labour didn't respond to our requests. It is, however, something our closest neighbours are tackling publicly, with an anti-corruption commission set to be up and running in Australia in the next few months. Professor Charles Samford is the Director of the Institute for Government Ethics and Law at the Griffith Law School in Australia, and he's with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning, thank you for being with us. I know there's a little bit of a delay on the line, so I'll try and be nice and clear with my questions, and then I'll leave it to you. How do the weight of New Zealand's recent events impact the public's perception of a government's integrity?
I can't be sure of exactly what response it will be. Uh, however, it, uh, one would expect uh, the uh, confidence uh, in the integrity of gov government to take a hit from several directions uh, and that it's a warning that things may not be as, uh, as good as they seem to be. And that's something that we've often seen. It was said in Australia for a very long time that uh, there wasn't a problem with corruption so we didn't need an anti-corruption commission. But then if you don't have the mechanisms to, uh, to uh, examine and uh, prosecute uh, corruption, in that case it's likely to fester underneath the surface. I think so. The sort of problems that you're having uh, are, not, are not atypical for developed democracies. Uh, there is uh, big issues of money in politics, there's too much, and truth in politics, there's too little. I think some definitions could be helpful here, Professor. This is maybe a simple question, but, but what is corruption? Most, uh, the most common definition is that uh, corruption is the abuse of entrusted power for personal or party political interests. New Zealand prides itself in rating pretty highly on Transparency International's Corruption's Perceptions Index. We were in second place in 2022, and you said something about this before that I want to pick up on. Is it realistic to think there is effectively no corruption in New Zealand, government and public service? Uh, <clears throat> well, of course, the... Corruption Perception Index, which we did quite a lot of work with uh, Transparency National trying to develop and improve in the, in the noughties. One of the most difficult things of all is to measure, measure corruption because obviously those who engage in it don't want to be public about it. And uh, crime statistics is one of the most difficult areas of, in criminology and corruption statistics even more so. Don't forget this is a Corruption Perception Index and it's quite... And, uh, the perception of corruption is based upon the knowledge of, uh, of past corruption. Uh, but it's not just about corruption, it's about building integrity. Uh, I define corruption as the abuse of entrusted power for personal or party political interests. Integrity is the use of, uh, of entrusted power for uh, the purpose for which it's, it's been given. We, we, the power, uh, governmental power in any democracy belongs to the people. Uh, it, we entrust politicians with, with that power and uh, there's obviously a temptation to abuse it for party political interest. Uh, and there are this, the, 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 uh, the problems you're having are not, are not atypical uh, in developed democracies and it's quite common that there's a, de a degree of complacency that comes in and occasionally things like this uh, uh, can be very useful because they can challenge complacency and uh, uh, be a big, a big reason for uh, governments to step in and engage in a range of integrity measures. One thing I want to emphasise, though, it's not just a matter of an anti-corruption commission. There are a lot of issues here about, uh, about uh, ministerial codes, the content and policing of it, about lobbying, as you've said, about ministerial staffers, about post-political employment, about disclosure of information, cabinet secrecy, donations, pork barrelling. And I think that one thing we've discovered that it's not just a matter of having an anti-corruption commission. What one needs is a number of integrity agencies. You have an ombudsman but that uh, there are other, other bodies that you're, that you're missing out on. Uh, we, um, uh, some Australian states have uh, 
uh, have um, uh, have uh, means by which they, we have in Queensland it's called an integrity commissioner, where politicians can be given ethical advice, uh, which they can rely on. Uh, others have uh, independent uh, commissioners mm. will investigate complaints about breaches of ministerial codes. Like a lot of Westminster systems, uh, your uh, ministerial code uh, is fairly limited in its scope. And worst of all, the thing is that the enforcement of the ministerial code is a matter for the Prime Minister. And unfortunately, Prime Ministers have an, uh, a, a massive and irredeemable conflict of interest in investigating uh, and deciding on how their own colleagues uh, will be... Uh, uh, whether they're, 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 they're guilty of a breach of the code uh, and what to do about it. And so there are a lot of integrity reforms that uh, Queensland... Sorry, that um, uh, Queensland has pushed through. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of the Commonwealth, it's a matter of the states. And there's some interesting possibility, because yeah. we're a federation with uh, strong state governments and a federal government, each can learn from the learn from the other, and uh, maybe New Zealand might learn from some of our bitter experience. Yeah, to talk to us about that a little bit more, if you can, Professor. And I'm going to pick you up on the point you made about the Prime Minister enforcing uh, the Cabinet Code of Conduct. What would be a better system in New Zealand for ensuring that ministers adhere to that? Well, that uh, no one has a perfect system, and this is a common problem. Uh, the UK, uh, mother of uh, parliaments, uh, has actually uh, created um, an official office of somebody to investigate breaches of uh, ministerial codes of conduct. Uh, we recommend, uh, following on a Canadian idea some uh, three, de three decades old, uh, a Canadian idea that you actually have an ethics counsellor Mm. and an ethics commissioner. The ethics counsellor can give advice to ministers uh, if, they've got, if they've got a concern, if they're uncertain about whether, they are, um, whether they're in breach of the ethical codes or whether something they're thinking of doing is in breach of an ethical code. Mm. And they can get authoritative advice so that, uh, uh, that the, uh, we call it the integrity commissioner in, in uh, Queensland. Uh, the gen generic term I'd use is an ethics counsellor. Somebody can give advice... And if you've disclosed all the relevant facts, and uh, that the uh, and you you've acted according to the advice of the ethics counsellor, the ethics counsellor has written you writes write, write you a letter and indicates that the uh, what 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 you can ethically do in this circumstance. Right. Uh, that has that's separate from an ethics commissioner, somebody who actually investigates uh, investigates breaches of the ministerial code. Uh, and this is this is this is useful because it means that the minister doesn't have to engage himself in a conflict of interest of do I really throw my uh, colleague under the bus for unethical behaviour? So you have a mixture of the two: an right. advisor and uh, an investigator. And uh, it, this does, it does, doesn't mean that the Prime Minister can't actually, uh, as he normally does, uh, sack, sack somebody uh, with or without cause. On the other hand, the thing is it means that if, the, if there is a serious uh, ethical breach, then in that case there's somebody mm. to investigate. And it will build confidence mm. in the ministerial code. Professor, there, are all, there, there are lots of other changes to the ministerial code that could be, uh, that could be followed. 
I, I want to pick you up on another point, if I can, and I should be really Sorry. clear, we are not accusing anyone of corruption. Sure. Um, but I want to talk about the new Corruption Commission, because for years you've worked on strengthening uh, and, uh, Australia's anti-corruption measures. The National Anti-Corruption Act was passed at the end of last year. An anti-corruption commission will be established in the next few months. What will that achieve? Uh, it's part of the answer. I mean, some of the you, 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 you're quite right that the uh, when it, that not 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 all the concerns we have are matters of corruption, uh, and often we don't actually know which 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 it is. Uh, that the anti-corruption commission is an important part of an integrity system when things go really really wrong, really bad. But it's important that uh, that an anti-corruption commission is just one part of what we call a, an integrity system. Uh, a set of different institutions. You've got some ad a good administrative law. You were very early on with uh, creating an office of the Ombudsman in 1962, leading the rest, leading the, uh, most of the uh, most of the uh, common law world. Uh, and so you've been, um, but uh, like a lot of like a lot of um, uh, countries which uh, have a reputation for relatively high levels of integrity, uh, there's certain complacency that can, that can come in. So Australia actually has uh, led the world in the 1970s in administrative law reforms, uh, freedom of information, what you call the, uh, the um, Official Information Act, uh, ombudsman, uh, judicial review, mm. uh, which allows uh, uh, and uh, easy access to judicial review, a whole range of different uh, different reforms. But Australia became very complacent, uh, and it's easy to become complacent because, of course, uh, corruption operates underneath the mm. um, uh, under the, under the radar, and uh, so it's an important part of it. But it's important that it's not the only. Part. Mm. Uh, because, of course, the thing is not all the problems you have are actually corruption. A lot of the problems we've looked at here, as I say, are conflicts of interest, lobbying, uh, secrets, cabinet secrecy, donations, pork barrelling and so forth. Mm. Uh, not all of these are corruption, uh, but uh, uh, many of them involve uh, a lack of integrity which can, uh, which can, if unchecked by a number of different integrity measures, if unchecked by integrity measures, uh, will create uh, long-term problems. Yeah, I and uh, the, the lack of confidence that uh, in the integrity system mm. which you describe. Uh, I appreciate you say that New Zealand needs to consider a number of measures right across the board, but when it comes to a corruption commission or an anti-corruption commission, should New Zealand have a similar commission to the one that is being established in Australia? Uh, I think that every uh, every democracy needs an anti-corruption commission. Uh, in emphasising that there are other things you need to have uh, to protect the integrity of government, mm. uh, an anti-corruption commission uh, is, in my view, uh, essential. Uh, in saying that it's not the only thing uh, that that you need, uh, I'm not saying you don't need an anti-corruption commission. Mm. For a very long time, the thing is that uh, the various states have had scandals and those scandals have led to the creation of anti-corruption commissions so that all the states and, t and territories mm. now have anti-corruption commissions. Uh, the Commonwealth has resisted for a very long time because they said that uh, there's, uh, there's no evidence of widespread corruption, so 
why uh, why do we need it? But they, that's a fallacy because, of course, the thing is that if you don't have an anti-corruption commission, it's unlikely that corruption mm. will be uh, will will be discovered. But of course, that so, so yes, the thing is that uh, I think that we've discovered and finally it got to the point where mm. uh, the lack of an anti-corruption commission became a very big political issue, and the previous uh, the previous government uh, was hurt enormously by it. Uh, not not just support for the Labor Party, but support for the for yeah. the Greens, the in, and the so-called teal independents, who were sort of like a liberal wing of what used to be the liberal wing of the Liberal Party. Yeah. Uh, so that ultimately, uh, people realised they need an anti-corruption mm. commission, and that's certainly what's happened in Australia. What Australians is not yet perfect. I think if New Zealand goes for one, they should look to go beyond best practice. There are a number of things which. Uh, uh, we in the Accountability mm. Roundtable and my institute have uh, have when been consulted by the, uh, the the government in creating a new anti-corruption commission. There are things that we believe that you can do better than Australia, uh, but I think it's a very good good point to start off with the comparisons. And as I say, not just the federal anti-corruption commission but the anti-corruption commissions right. in New South Wales and Queensland, which have been uh, around and operating for 30 years right. and have a lot, of, a lot of experience. Finally, Professor, lobbying. New Zealand doesn't have a register of lobbyists at the moment. There is no stand-down period for people leaving government to become lobbyists or people going the other direction. What should we do about lobbying in New Zealand? Uh, you should certainly have a register of interests. Uh, you should certainly learn from some of the inadequacies of our own, uh, of our own in uh, in the various state jurisdictions and in the Commonwealth jurisdiction. There are lots of weaknesses in the lobbyists' uh, register. Uh, it's um, because one of the problems we actually have is that um, if uh, if somebody uh, is a minister and then resigns and joins a lobbying firm, he has to register. But if he or she joins a, uh, a company and is employed by a corporation, they're not a lobbyist by right. definition, which is one of the biggest sort of loopholes you could possibly imagine. You can drive a truck through it. <laughs> and uh, there's been a lot of B-doubles that have gone through that particular loophole. Uh, seriously, the thing is, yes, you do need a lobbyist register, but you need to look... So best practice and beyond best practice. Otherwise, uh, again, complacency will be built in. We've got a lobbyist register, no problem here. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as far as stand-down periods, uh, I think that's absolutely absolutely essential. Uh, some some ministers have, have uh, after finishing, have started immediately or quite quickly with uh, companies that deal with the area they've been uh, involved with. And uh, whereas, whereas um, I'm... I'm sorry when the people have made a particular minister redundant by uh, voting him out of office. They need they need to look for work, but unfortunately, uh, the work should not involve right. uh, lobbying uh, their immediate their their, their their previous previous colleagues right. or engage in uh, lobbying for the interests that they were once trying to regulate. There's enormous temptation to think about post-employment uh, uh, opportunities and uh, those that um, are going to be lucrative, most lucrative for uh, their employers are probably the least appropriate right. uh, for post-political uh, post employment. 
thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. That is Professor Charles Samford from the Institute for Government Ethics and Law at Griffiths University in Pleasure. Australia. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Next, we are live in the US to ask, will criminal charges help or hurt the re-election chances of President Donald Trump? Well, I think the unprecedented indictment of a former president of the United States on a campaign finance issue is an outrage. And, and it appears to, to millions of Americans to be nothing more than a political prosecution that's driven by a prosecutor who literally ran for office on the pledge to indict the former president. That is former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence reacting to the news that Donald Trump has become the first U.S. president to be indicted on criminal charges. Now, we don't know the exact nature of the charges just yet. The file won't be unlocked until Wednesday, New Zealand time. But they relate to campaign finance laws and hush money that was paid on behalf of Donald Trump to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Donald Trump's supporters say the charges are politically motivated. And we have ceased being a country that can be described as a country of laws. We've become a country of dictators, Democrat dictators who decide who's going to be prosecuted, make it up, and who's not going to be prosecuted and let them get away with some of the worst crimes, including crimes that are very close to treason. Altogether, this situation is shaping up as a massive test of American democracy. Correspondent Catherine Furkin is live outside Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago in Florida for, the, for us this morning. Kia ora, Catherine. How's it going to work when Donald Trump leaves Mar-a-Lago and is arraigned on those charges? Yeah, well, interestingly, Jack, Trump's team has been incredibly vocal about just what's going to happen with Trump over the next 48 hours. We know that on Monday he's going to fly by private jet to New York. He'll then stay in his suite at Trump Tower. On Tuesday morning, he and his legal team will head to the Manhattan Criminal Court where police processing will get underway, and that will involve him being fingerprinted and also having a mugshot taken. Not a particularly auspicious activity for a former US president, but certainly one that is now going to happen. Importantly, at that moment, Trump will also get a chance to finally enter his plea to these charges. We are expecting that that plea will be not guilty. Yes, it would be very surprising if it was anything else. Um, I just want to bring in some pictures now, Catherine, of the security and police presence in New York, because already there is an increased security presence there. What is the risk of violence or unrest? Well, certainly we've seen a massive security presence around New York, but also where I am here in Mar-a-Lago. At the moment, law enforcement is saying there is no credible threat to Tuesday's court appearance, but what they are really concerned about is the potential for a lone wolf attacker. We are expecting mass crowds and just general chaos around that court district, and they're worried that someone who may not be on the police radar, who perhaps may even have a grievance against Trump himself or another law enforcement person or government official, that they may use that opportunity to to commit an act of violence. An interesting dimension to all of this is the role of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's seen by many as the main rival to Donald Trump for the Republican nomination for president next year. He and Trump aren't known to have much time for one another. So how has he reacted to the indictment? 
Yeah, they're certainly not besties. I doubt they're on each other's Christmas card list. It's important to note, though, that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis hasn't actually announced that he is going to run for president. We are expecting him to, but he hasn't made that announcement just yet. And right now, I think he's certainly pretty keen to stay on the sidelines and just sit this one out and see how this plays out for Trump, because Trump will be his biggest competitor if he does throw his ring in the hat. But right after the indictment of Trump was announced, he tweeted that he would not support the extradition request if there was one to bring Trump to New York. I don't think it's ever going to get to that point. Right now it seems like Trump actually wants the attention. He wants to be paraded in front of the crowds. There's even talk that he wants to be handcuffed so that he'll come across as a bit of a political martyr. See, that is very, very interesting, isn't it? Is there a sense that uh, this turn of events is likely to boost Donald Trump's election campaign? There certainly is that discussion taking place. It's really hard to know at the moment what this is going to do for his re-election chances. Any other politician probably in the world, if they were indicted and charged with a crime, it would almost certainly spell the end of their career. But this is Donald Trump that we are talking about. He is a man who thrives on chaos and turmoil. So certainly this could work to galvanise his supporters. People I've spoken to here outside Mar-a-Lago certainly think that this will send him straight to the White House. I don't know if that is uh, completely accurate but right now they've been fundraising his entire team fundraising since the indictment was announced they've already raised more than four million US dollars so it's certainly doing something to energize him at the moment whether that will carry through to uh, the presidential election 19 months away we're not sure yeah uh, Manhattan in New York is dominated by Democrats and of course in the United States district attorneys are elected so they are inherently political positions. The district attorney in Manhattan is under enormous pressure, but how has he responded to the allegations that these charges are politically motivated? Well, certainly the Republicans, Donald Trump himself, have been very quick to say that this is all a witch hunt, that Donald Trump is the subject of political persecution. But New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg is having none of that. He has hit out very strongly, saying that this is a, a process of months where the grand jury has been meeting, holding these secret discussions. There had to be enough evidence for all of them to agree to pursue prosecution, and that's what's happened. He now just wants the justice system process to play out as it's intended to do. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Catherine. That is correspondent Catherine Furkin for us live outside Mar-a-Lago in Florida. It is going to be a crazy 18 months. After the break, New Zealand's immigration minister has a new plan for processing asylum seekers. But critics say it's inhumane. Kia ora koutou, welcome back. Immigration Minister Michael Wood has introduced new legislation for dealing with mass arrivals by boat. Around the Western world, countries are increasing the barriers to people seeking asylum. And reporter Fina Owen asked, is New Zealand doing the same thing? Will they arrive? When will they arrive? What we do know is that so-called boat people, modern-day asylum seekers, as yet haven't arrived in New Zealand. I move that the Immigration Mass Arrivals Amendment Bill be now read a first time. Just in case the government plans to update the law around possible mass maritime arrivals, seeking to extend the detention time for processing from 96 hours up to 28 days. 
Former Immigration Minister Nationals Michael Woodhouse remembers the original mass arrivals legislation going through Parliament and Labour scoffing at it. David Cunliffe, who very shortly after this bill was passed became leader of the opposition, basically said there was more chance of little green men coming from Mars than a boat landing on the shores of New Zealand. This time round, with Labour at the helm, Immigration Minister Michael Wood appeared apologetic. This is not the kind of piece of legislation uh, that, as a Labour Minister, I've dreamed of bringing to this House. Greens MP Golras Garriman claims New Zealand had a good reputation as a welcoming country to displaced people, up until now. We certainly haven't had this kind of attitudes that we see on the rise now. So this bill is a sad moment for New Zealand. Um, in shifting us towards that punitive attitude. Garriman is referring to a harder line on unauthorised arrivals taken by the UK, Australia, the US and Canada over the past decade, but especially in the last year. This is the UK's message to these refugees camped at Dunkirk. If you come here illegally, you can't claim asylum. You can't benefit from our modern slavery protections. You can't make spurious human rights claims. And you can't stay. Across the Atlantic, Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau have recently toughened up on illegal migrants crossing their border. After midnight tonight, police and border officers will enforce the agreement. Dr Neil Vallely from Otago University's Centre for Global Migrations is looking at why these Western countries, known as the Global North, are strengthening their legislation around illegal arrivals. There are very high levels of economic inequality across the Global North at the moment, um, including in New Zealand with the, the cost of living crisis. And immigrants often become a kind of easy target for governments um, to point towards. Um, and then there's increasing kind of global inequalities, particularly between the global north and the global south. Um, so many people um, in the global south are forced to move to the countries of the global north in search of jobs and better income, which then leads to kind of growing anti-immigrant sentiment and so on and so forth. Wars and, and conflicts obviously lead to mass displacements of people. We're in an election year, and, and it will be close to the election as the bill gets debated. Uh, the communities identified by this bill, the former refugees and asylum seeker communities, and even migrants of colour, will become the target of different interest groups, far-right groups that are becoming louder and louder in New Zealand politics as their humanity is debated in Parliament. The Green MP may see the bill as punitive, but Nationals' Jerry Brownlee wonders if Labour's reworking of it may be an invitation to prospective asylum seekers. If the bill were to mean that their chances were pretty good at getting citizenship here, at getting a, a residence here, uh, then I think we would have a little bit of a problem because we'd be signalling to a lot of these people uh, that we're an easy target. We have been a target before. Last decade, passengers on several boats intercepted by the Australians reported that they were heading to our shores. My understanding is that it put out a distress call, uh, which is why the boat was boarded by Australian personnel. In 2015, John Key's government was embroiled in a diplomatic controversy over a boat bound for New Zealand, the Andika, but turned around by the Australians the Indonesians accusing Tony Abbott of paying the skippers off. 
Dr Villerly claims the UK is now mirroring Australia's hard line. The policies in the UK are really interesting um, from a research side of things because they are very much um, reflecting and drawing on lots of the same imagery and language that Australia has used over the last 10 years. So we saw Richie Sunak standing um, at a podium with, with a phrase on the podium that said, stop the boats, which was a, a campaign that um, Tony Abbott was very uh, fond of, that um, Scott Morrison used a lot, a phrase, stop the boats. Migrants have forever been exploited as political pawns at times. During the harsh northern winter of 2021, the EU accused Belarus of intentionally sending asylum seekers up to the border with Poland to destabilise Europe. It is an abuse of some of the world's most vulnerable people. Migrants turned into weapons in a political battle. Back home, the immigration minister in defence of his bill cites Canada's experience in 2010 when they were unprepared for the sudden arrival of 492 asylum seekers. We do have credible information and intelligence that New Zealand continues to be a destination of interest to people smugglers. There's quite a bit redacted in that cabinet paper about this amendment. Shouldn't you just, or shouldn't we just trust the government who is privy to information about the potential of mass arrivals? The right to be free from arbitrary detention, and in this case probably in a criminal prison, is one of the most fundamental rights in our system. And every time a government cites a lack of resource, or secret information to take away a fundamental right, we absolutely should challenge them. Submitters will have the opportunity to challenge the government as the bill goes through the select committee process. The numbers of displaced people is predicted to increase globally this decade due to economic stress, political conflicts, and there are other forces in waiting. Climate change is also going to be a huge driver of old migration and this is going to be a real big issue in, in the South Pacific. Um, so we can't necessarily say exactly what's going to happen but it, as if trends continue as they are we're going to see more and more um, flows of migration and these are issues that governments across the global north are going to have to confront. And according to Labour that's exactly what this tweak of the law is confronting. It's very interesting. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Cool, Mutu, that is Q&A for this week. A couple of quick things before we go. Jacinda Ardern's valedictory speech in Parliament is this Wednesday. We're going to have live coverage on the One News website. And we're going to be off air for Q&A next weekend for Easter. So I hope you have a wonderful long weekend and we will see you again in a fortnight on April 16th. Until then, AR Q&A. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.